Thanks, folks, for leading us in that great time of singing. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The chapter opens with Mary Magdalene arriving at the tomb where Jesus has been laid following his death by crucifixion. It was early Sunday morning. In fact, it's still dark out when she arrives. She approached the tomb and discovered the stone that had been used to seal the opening of the tomb had been rolled away. And she immediately concluded that someone had removed the body of Jesus. She believed that in spite of everything that Jesus had said previously. Remember in John chapter 2, for example, in verse 18, we read, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as, as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise, raise it up. The Jews thought he was speaking of the physical temple. But later, his disciples understood correctly that Jesus was actually speaking of himself. In John chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, we read, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report similar predictions. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, for example, we read, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And these are just a few examples of the many times that Jesus spoke of his death, burial, and pending resurrection. Although Jesus has spoken clearly of all three, Mary still, the first thing that came to her mind was that someone stole the body. In her mind, that was the only explanation for that open tomb, that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. And so she ran. She ran to tell the others of their discovery. Simon Peter and an unnamed disciple, you remember, the one who Jesus referred to, or the one whom was referred to that Jesus loved, came running. They wanted to see for themselves this empty tomb. And once inside, they found the linen wrappings that had covered the corpse. And notice verse 7. The face cloth, which had been on his head, rolled up and in a place off by itself. Clearly, this was not a scene of a grave robbery. Who would run off with a naked corpse and leave such an ordered crime scene behind? The unnamed disciple, according to verse 8, saw and believed. 
He had seen enough. He believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He did not need a post-resurrection appearance. In his mind, the evidence laid out in that tomb was absolutely convincing. It was enough. Simon Peter, however, saw the same evidence left, but then left the tomb with his believing companion. They both returned to the place from where they had come, according to verse 10. And then verse 11 begins with a a but. But Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb, weeping. Interesting. Three separate set of eyes and three very different responses. Which begs the question, how do you respond to the empty tomb? Will you ignore it, dismiss it, explain it away, or just flat out deny it? It's impossible. It didn't happen. Before you answer that question, I'd like us to consider what happens next. And so this morning, we were going to focus on verses 11 through 18. And in these verses, we will see Mary Magdalene's encounter with a resurrected Jesus. She was the first of many, but she was the first. And so if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scriptures this morning. We'll begin reading at verse 11, John chapter 20. So beginning at verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this written revelation, a book that we can hold in our hands and read, study, ponder. 
a book that reveals who you are, your plans and your purposes, and who we are from your perspective. Claims to be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, cutting deep and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, laying us open to listen and obey. May that be the case in each of our lives this morning as we give our attention to this report of Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus following his resurrection from the dead. Father, as we read, study, ponder these verses, may it become a transformative encounter for each and every one of us. By the power of your spirit, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul was writing to believers in the city of Rome. In his first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he lays out the theological foundation for their faith. And in chapter 12, he begins to present the practical implications of that theological foundation. Verse 1 reads, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. Our grandsons love to play with those transformers. For those who are not aware of it, they're toys that, well, they look like cars and trucks, but they can be turned into these robot-looking things with heads and hands and legs and feet. And then back into cars again. And I'm always amazed to watch their little hands twist and turn these movable parts, completing the transformation in the blink of an eye. I can only wish that our personal transformations could be performed with such ease and speed. Here in John chapter 20, Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance transformed Mary Magdalene. She would never be the same again. Her transformation included not twists and turns of movable parts, but of two questions. One realization and two commands. Let's work our way through them. Two questions. The first question was delivered by two angels. Look at verses 11 through 13 again. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, 
Why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have taken him. Do you find anything strange about that incident? You know, you've read incident reports before. This is one here in John chapter. Anything strange as you read that? Let me make it more personal. How would you respond if you looked into an empty tomb and saw two angels sitting there? (laughs) Perhaps she did not initially recognize them as angels. That seems rather unlikely because the text says that they were dressed in white. And in scripture, that's a dead giveaway. Pardon the pun. Interesting, Luke chapter 24 reports that Mary Magdalene was not the only one that arrived at the tomb on that early Sunday morning. She came with a group of women. Before she ran off to tell the others, Luke chapter 24 verse 4 reads, While they were perplexed about this, that's about the stone being rolled away, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. So this may explain Mary's kind of ho-hum response as she sees two angels sitting in the tomb. Oh, it's you guys again. Their question of Mary was not to gain information, but in fact it was a mild rebuke. This woman who stood outside the tomb weeping, was still preoccupied or consumed with a profound sense of loss. Remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus was standing outside his friend's tomb? Lazarus had been buried for four days already. Friends and family were still there, weeping and wailing. And Jesus turns to Lazarus' older sister, Martha, and announced, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, Mary Magdalene's behavior outside Jesus' empty tomb indicates that she didn't believe it. I think it was Ralph Emerson who said, your actions are speaking so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. Mary Magdalene's actions were saying that she did not believe that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. The second question came from Jesus whom Mary Magdalene supposed was the gardener. 
Notice verses 14 and 15. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. It did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Well, there's all kinds of speculation as to why Mary Magdalene did not recognize Jesus for who he was. Some would suggest it was the tears in her eyes that was blurring her vision. Others would say that Jesus was somehow disguised or unrecognizable. Or others would say, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that she was just supernaturally prevented from recognizing him. The text here does not explain why she did not recognize Jesus. Perhaps it was part of the process of her working through her unbelief. Jesus repeats the first question. Woman, why are you weeping? Another mild rebuke which led to a second question. Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? Now that's a good question. If only she had taken the time to think about it. Who am I looking for? What kind of Messiah are you expecting, Mary? You see, our preoccupations, our presuppositions, our assumptions filter everything that we see. Recently, I was watching a movie in which a mom was accused of abusing her children. The detective that was assigned to the case was an old veteran. Just by looking at him, you knew that he had seen a, a whole lot in his long career. A whole lot that no one should ever have to look at. As a result, he was absolutely convinced that she was guilty. And as a result, it turned out to be a gut-wrenching hour and a half ordeal until she could finally prove her innocence. It's based on a true story, apparently. But this detective, he just couldn't see it. In his eyes, everything pointed to her guilt. In the same way, in spite of the questions, Mary Magdalene couldn't see past or through her profound sense of loss. Two questions. One realization. Look what happens next in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Listen as I read from you a passage that we studied a number of months ago from John chapter 10. And Jesus is describing the difference between a true shepherd of the sheep compared to a robber or a thief or a stranger or even a hired hand. 
Listen as he explains. The gatekeeper, gatekeeper opens the gate for him. That's for the, the true shepherd. And the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them. They follow him because they know his voice. That word picture is being played out in real time here in John chapter 20 and verse 16. When Jesus called her by name, Mary, she recognized his voice and realized that this man was not the gardener, but it was none other than Jesus himself. Can you imagine the one whose corpse she had been so desperately looking for? When Mary Magdalene realized she was speaking with Jesus, she was transformed. Her grief, that preoccupation with a profound sense of loss, was transformed into great joy. The kind of great joy that you and I experience when we lose, find something that we've lost, that we considered valuable. Like the car keys yesterday afternoon. <laughs> Those fobs are expensive. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. She's the one that found it. Or like a lost sheep or a gold coin, or a rebellious lost child. We want to celebrate. Mary Magdalene's realization was transformational. Her grief was replaced almost immediately with celebration. Two questions, one realization, and two commands. Look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said, said these things to her. D.A. Carson, a prominent New Testament scholar, who is a professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, wrote a commentary on the book of John, one that I've leaned heavily on throughout this series, wrote the following. This verse, meaning verse 17, belongs to a handful of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Do you know that? Verse 17. The most, one of the most difficult passages interpret in the New Testament. Interesting. As I studied, I came to the wondered, maybe, perhaps, some of the difficulty comes from trying to plumb the depths of depths that don't exist. For our purposes this morning, these two commands lie exposed on the surface of this verse. Stop clinging Go and tell. Stop clinging to an unrecoverable past. Stop hanging on to me for dear life. Instead, 
go and tell my brethren of this undeniable evidence. At this time, Jesus puts his words into Mary, Mary's mouth. Instead of verse 2, remember what she announced to the disciples? They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This time, Jesus says, tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. But what does that mean? Mary certainly would have reported to the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord. But Jesus wanted to communicate much more than that. With this message, he is emphasizing their new relationship with their Father who is in heaven. He was Jesus' Father, but he was also the disciples' Father. But notice Jesus didn't say, our Father. Their relationship to the Father would be similar, but still different. Remember John chapter 1, verse 12? But as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 reads, For both he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, all believers, are all from one Father. For which, reason, for which reason he is not ashamed, Jesus is not ashamed, to call them brothers and sisters. This is the first time in the gospel accounts that the disciples of Jesus were called brethren. With this message entrusted to Mary Magdalene, Jesus was em emphasizing the privileges that his disciples now shared with him because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and soon-to-be ascension. It was a message full of hope and optimism. Mary Magdalene was transformed as she stood outside that empty tomb on that Sunday morning by two questions, one realization, and two commands. She was transformed from a mourner, someone who was preoccupied or consumed with this sense of loss, a profound sense of loss, clinging to an unrecoverable past, could not turn it back, from a mourner to a messenger. A messenger full of joy, hope, and optimism. Be transformed. Beloved, God is in the transformation business. He desires to transform lives for our good and for his glory. Think of the nation of Israel. Oh, how they struggled to live up to the standard that God requires for a relationship with him. That's the story of the Old Testament. But listen to the word of God delivered to the nation of Israel through the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Listen to these words. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. That's transformation. That's transformation language. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. God is in the transformation business. Think of Jesus. God dressed in human flesh. And how he called his original disciples, his original ministry companions. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will transform you into fishers of men. God is in the transformational business. And then we have already been reminded of God's call to believers today, people like you and I. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Beloved, let us not settle for the counterfeit. Behavioral modification is not the answer. It is not. That's what the Pharisees of Jesus' day were promoting. An unhealthy preoccupation with external behavior. In fact, Jesus referred to them as whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Matthew 23, verse 27. Heroic efforts may be involved in your attempts to be a better person, to accomplish in our own strength. They are temporary, man-centered, and a cheap substitute with no eternal value. God is not impressed. He's not. You've heard the saying, you can put lipstick on a, peg, on a pig, dress him up, spray him with perfume, and put a bow on his tail, and he's still a pig. <laughs> the kind of transformation that we're speaking about this morning requires an encounter with Jesus. Absolutely essential. And you and I will never have that transformational encounter outside an empty tomb on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. We will not. But what we can have are transformational encounters with Jesus in the pages of this book. Be transformed. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. So what's hindering God's transformation in your life? God desires it. What's preventing it in your life and in my life? Let me give four possibilities. And with this, 
It is no, by no means an exhaustive list, but it's a good start. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Old things repel God's transformational work in your life and in mine. And those old things are the things that characterize lives of unbelievers. So unbelief isolates or insulates us from any kind of transformational work that God wants to do in our life. We need to believe. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's been referred to earlier. But listen to the rest of the verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what, is the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation begins with our minds. Thinking right thoughts. And the world is not helpful at all in this regard. Remember the saying, garbage in, garbage out. The world is trying to squeeze you into its mold by infecting our minds, polluting us. And the antidote, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are God's written revelation of his person, his plans and purposes, and even his perspective. They have the power to transform our thinking so that we begin to have his thoughts. His thoughts become our thoughts. Right thoughts lead to right behaviors. Right behaviors will eventually lead to right feelings. In John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus offered his followers this promise. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Beloved, the more time that you and I spend in this book, the more we invite God's transformational work in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And notice who the author and perfecter is. It's not me. It's not the elders. It's not you. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. These verses, they call for an entire new sermon, right? We can start right here, all over again. We won't do that. But notice these words in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Folks, clinging to the things of this world. In other words, being preoccupied with our cravings for physical pleasure, the cravings for everything we see, and the pride in all of our achievements and possessions, and or being mastered by specific personal and habitual sin. Clinging to those kinds of behaviors and appetites will limit the transformation of your life, the transformational influence that God wants to have in your life and mine. Mary Magdalene's had a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus as she stood weeping outside the empty tomb. It has to encourage you and I to develop habits that invite or us to develop habits or be in places that invite a similar transformation, transformational encounter with Jesus. Remember a little course that was popular a number of years ago, in fact, when I first became a Christian. I remember it being sung at youth group and, and in church for years. I haven't heard it for a long time, but it came to mind as I was working through this passage of Scripture. It goes like this. Little by little every day, little by little in every way. Anybody recognize it? My Jesus is changing me. He's changing me. Since I made that turnabout face, I've been growing in his grace. Jesus is changing me. He's changing me, my precious Savior. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Well, sometimes it's been slow going, but there's a knowing that someday, perfect, I will be. God wants to transform us from sinners to incredibly credible messengers. Ambassadors for Christ, his representatives, salt and light in a lost and broken world, go knowing that little by little, little becomes a lot. Let's pray. Father, in the words of that old hymn, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You are the potter, we are the clay. Mold us and make us after your will while we're waiting, yielded and still. Transform us, little by little, every day, into the image of Jesus, 
by the power of your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.